This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Chelsea Clark is a middle school teacher in Florida. I have been a teacher in Fort Myers, Florida for the last four years. And uh, the amount of change I've seen in these four years has been absolutely insane. Um, When I first started teaching, I felt safe. I felt valuable. Uh, I felt like I could do all of my responsibilities in the classroom and be successful. I felt like my kids, by and large, for the most part, were provided for and healthy and happy. Unfortunately, Chelsea says that's changed in a big way. I've broken up at least 10 fights this year and um, I've been sexually harassed by students. You know, until I bent over to help another student and like look at something on his Chromebook and another student stood up behind me and humped me. And our administration is like struggling so hard to keep up with all these behavior issues that kids will say and do things like this and then they just don't get punished. Well, Chelsea's experience isn't unique. When the pandemic hit and schools shut down, 50 million American children lost their primary place of learning and socialization. Half of those kids wouldn't be allowed to return to their school buildings for more than a year. That's a year of growth, academic, social and emotional, lost. A reminder that the COVID pandemic caused the greatest disruption in the history of American education. And when students were finally allowed to re-enter their school buildings, they brought new behavioral challenges with them. Austin Reif says he's even noticed a change in the two- and three-year-olds he works with at a Columbus, Ohio daycare. I'm seeing a lot of these children just being delayed in their ability to take simple direction, like, let's sit, let's not climb on things, let's not run in the room. We talk about in my center, just it seems like COVID really put a hindrance on being able to to work with children to handle being told no, being told, you know, listen, I know you really want to go play with these toys, but we need to come and, uh, and sit and work on this activity. However, the pandemic is not uniquely responsible for changes in classroom behavior. As with many aspects of American life, the pandemic magnified challenges that were already there, but hidden. A rise in disruptive behavior was already taking place prior to 2020. It's one of the reasons why Amber Blevins recently left her job in Illinois. She'd been a teacher for 20 years. There's no doubt in my mind that tying funding for schools to test scores and daily attendance has created environments in school systems where almost any bad behavior is tolerated and there are no ramifications for low achievement, uh, disrespect, disregard for rules. And parents seem to, to support that because they seem to think that public school teachers are picking on their children if they try to hold them accountable for their actions. I've seen this get worse and worse over the years, and it's gotten to the point where I've left jobs at schools because I was afraid for my safety, knowing that a child could potentially assault me with no repercussions whatsoever. Well, now, at least a half dozen states are pushing to crack down on student discipline. They're considering get-tough legislation that marks a pointed change in how schools have approached discipline for the past several decades. 
And teachers unions are on board in several states, saying that stricter rules are necessary to, quote, protect other students in the classroom. Well, Ben Court is senior K-12 through researcher at the education consulting firm EAB, which has done several studies on student behavior and discipline pre- and post-pandemic. Ben, welcome. Hi, Magna. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. So obviously, um, behavior concerns after the pandemic rose sharply, and we'll talk about that in a second. But how high were they or how much was behavior concern amongst teachers even before the pandemic? Sure. I think it's important to frame this to go back for a second and and look at the 2010s, the decade that was actually a a really hard time for many students and families. There's a wide range of factors uh, affecting students um, following the Great Recession, from economic turmoil through to the opioid epidemic, uh, steady rise in mental health crises among students and adults. And also, if we look at family structure, we saw more students living with grandparents, for example. Um, When we look in schools specifically, they were also facing an increase in academic pressure and testing, um, in large part stemming from no child left behind. Um, and then as a result, we saw oftentimes you know, fewer opportunities to engage in free play and physical activity and more time spent on screens. So by the time we got to 2018, we already had superintendents and school leaders from across the country coming to us saying, you know what, we're seeing the results of this. We're seeing a steady increase in disruptive behavior in our classrooms, especially at the elementary level. Um, And so when we surveyed teachers originally back in 2018, uh, we saw around 70% of teachers say that they'd seen an increase in disruptive behavior in their classrooms over the past three years, and about half of those saying that the increase had been significant. 70%? Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, so you've just given us a, a, a kind of a rather large suite of potential causes for what seems to be a marked change in um, in what teachers are seeing in classrooms. Uh, I just want to play a, a thought that came to us from uh, an on-point listener. This is Olivia, who's a teacher who left us a message in our Vox Pop app. And she said, yes, she's noticed an uptick in challenging behaviors in her classroom. Uh, and she identifies the fact that kids don't just, to, just don't get to play as much anymore. Students' attention spans are shorter and they crave social connection, but often lack the skills to solve conflicts when they inevitably arise. I see this in my classroom as emotional outbursts or resistance to participate in response to things that usually happened outside of my class. I work very hard to keep myself regulated and respond to students with a calm voice and reasonable requests. Often I'm able to talk a child down, but when safety becomes an issue, my administration is very supportive in removing the student from the room. The parents I've spoken with are generally supportive and typically help the students make positive behavior changes moving forward. I've done quite a bit of work on my end to equip myself in response to the increasing behaviors, and the biggest change I've made is in preventing the behaviors by keeping the children engaged through play. I don't believe children play enough. Even the research says it's how children learn best. This may be the true underlying issue. Ben, can you just talk about that a little more? Because you had mentioned things like no child left behind and standardized testing um, and, and changes in behavior amongst especially younger kids. So what do you think about what Olivia says? 
I think there's a lot to be said for what she just shared. Uh, I think as we look at what kids have missed out on, especially over the past couple of years, it's not just the opportunity to get together and socialize with other peers their same age and, and naturally develop those uh, social skills and the ability to regulate their own emotions. It's also the ability to learn how to function in a formal learning environment in a structured classroom. And, and so... All of those things being absent over the, you know, for an extended period of time I mean we now have students in schools who now need to relearn those skills, relearn what it means to function in an organized space, and also learn how to just interact with their peers in the playground rather than look at an iPad or spend most of their time on screens. Mm. Okay, so even before the pandemic in, um, in this 2018 survey that... Uh, EAB did, as you mentioned, that 70% of educators were saying that discipline is a major concern already in their classrooms. How much did that change when you um, surveyed some 1,100 educators again more recently? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things to note. So during that first survey, the behaviors we saw most frequent um, or reported most frequently were things like oppositional defiance and tantrums and, you know, Around 15, 16% of educators at the time were saying that they were seeing more severe, what you might think of as fight or flight behaviors. So physical violence between students in the classroom and fleeing. If we fast forward to 2022, what we saw was across the board, no matter which type of disruptive or concerning behavior we asked about, rates had increased by at least 50%. But among those more concerning behaviors, so things like physical violence between students, you're seeing those rates at least double or more. So there's definitely an increase across the board in the number uh, and frequency of disruptive incidents in classrooms, but we're also seeing a slight change in the types of disruptive behavior that we're seeing in classrooms as well, some more severe incidents. And was this sort of an across-the-board finding um, that you uh, that you discovered, Ben, or was it, you know, as, as things had go in America, uh, certain communities tend to have disproportionate impact on them. And the the pandemic was, you know, like people's exhibit A on that. Uh, And so I'm wondering if there were were greater impacts on students in certain places than others. I think that's undoubtedly true. As you just shared, almost in in every issue that we look at in education, um, historically underserved communities end up having dealt with more difficult circumstances. And so there is absolutely evidence that disruptive behaviors increasing in classrooms, in schools from low-income communities and communities of color. But I think it's really important to share that that is this is not a localized problem, that we are seeing this across the board, um, regardless of socioeconomic status. So this is something that we're seeing in almost every district that we work with across the country. Okay. So then um, we've reached a point now where uh, it seems like several states are thinking about taking kind of a uh, quite a dramatic turn in their approach to discipline, like adopting more of a sort of a get tough regime. We're going to talk about that in the next segment here. But but Ben, I wonder what you think about it. Have have things uh, reached a level of uh, crisis or frustration where? Um, where you understand why some states might be saying, well, we actually just have to get tougher on kids. I think absolutely there is a level of crisis involved here. However, the most important message here is that moving towards more punitive and exclusionary forms of discipline is not the right answer for those students and not the right answer for other students in the classroom either. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about exactly what some of these states are considering, um, and again, also the the drawbacks or counter arguments to a more get tough approach when it comes to this consistent rise in challenging student behaviors in America's classrooms. So we'll have all that when we come back. This is on point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're joined by Ben Court. He's Senior Director of K-12 Research at the education consulting firm EAB. And we're talking about the dramatic rise in school discipline issues, not just after the COVID pandemic, but even in the decade preceding the pandemic, the fact that challenging student behaviors have become a top concern in school districts across the country. For example, here's a teacher in Pennsylvania who called us and left us a voicemail message about a time his class of middle schoolers came in rowdier than usual at the end of the school day they decided uh, to start fighting with each other in class. Now, it wasn't malicious in nature, but it was still, you know, fists were being thrown, people were getting hit in the shoulders. So when I went to administration, told them of the story and said, hey, I've had issues with these students recently, the administrative individual then said that I can't get involved until you have already tried to give them a detention. Unless it's a genuine fight where someone is getting bloodied up, uh, or until I've already tried giving them a detention and they refuse to appear for said detention. So um, disciplining has now become a bureaucratic process where you cannot supersede any step. Uh, teachers get no say in this nowadays. And I think that that is making the job for teachers harder and making it uh, just harder to discipline those who actually need discipline and taking away from the ability to teach the rest of the class. Well, we're at the point now where at least a half a dozen states are considering legislation that could change that. It is There are various forms of legislation that would allow teachers and administrators to get tougher when it comes to student discipline. So just last month, March 2023, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear signed a student discipline bill into law that would allow teachers to expel disruptive students. Beshear is a Democrat, and here's what he said at a press conference after the signing. 
I think it's one, uh, Bill, that, that really comes down to school safety at a time when we've seen some, some really scary incidents uh, across the country. Now, this is one that I believe if carried out appropriately um, can hopefully intervene before some of those things happen. So that's Governor Andy Beshear in uh, Kentucky. In West Virginia, lawmakers also passed a school discipline bill in March of 2023, so just last month. Here's the bill's sponsor, Republican Delegate uh, Marty Gearhart, arguing in favor of the measure back in January. I've talked to principals who indicate this is a major problem. And I have talked to teachers who have said, oh my golly, thank God that we can keep the one from disrupting an education to be delivered to the many. We are preserving the constitutional rights of everyone else in that classroom that is being denied that by disruptive students. So that's voices from just two of the at least half dozen states that are considering or have passed stronger discipline bills for uh, their state's schools. Now, Ben Court, can you just take us back a little bit and describe what the prevailing sort of philosophy on discipline has been um, over the past 10 or 15 years in a lot of America's school districts? Because it seemed like it was the opposite of this sort of more strict get tough notion. I think over time, what we've learned is that punitive and exclusionary forms of discipline, which have historically been the norm. If you go back, you know, 20, 30 years, we all went through school in which we were used to dis, uh, uh, detentions, suspensions, etc. What we've learned is that, A, there are significant equity concerns associated with that approach. B, it doesn't work. Um, when we look at exclusionary forms of discipline, let's say you hold a student back from recess because they were disruptive in class. That just removes their opportunity to get some of their energy out and ends up exacerbating the situation. We know that sending kids home, so suspensions, lead to lower academic performance for those students and an increased likelihood of them dropping out of school altogether. Um, when we look even at in-school suspensions or classrooms with high rates of exclusionary discipline, there's some interesting studies to show that not only is it worse for the student who is the recipient of that discipline, it's also worse for other students in the classroom. We see overall academic achievement go down in schools with high rates of punitive discipline. And so while I want to be clear that every teacher and student deserves a safe learning environment, we also need to have more informed discussion around what happens after a disruptive incident and more nuanced discussion about the fact that there are many different forms of what is perceived to be disruptive behavior that occur for different reasons. And so right now, there is a lot of... Uh, straightforward, you know, seemingly simple messages being put out into the ether that miss the important nuances of the conversation. Hmm. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper um, into the things that, that some of these states, these at least half dozen states are considering with, with that idea of the, the nuance that you just talked about uh, in mind, Ben. So to help us do that, Patrick Wall joins us. He's a senior reporter at Chalkbeat, the education news organization. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit, Patrick, about um, the sort of scope of, of legislation that you're seeing or that you've reported on in these roughly half dozen states? What are they considering? Sure. They range. Um, 
from a kind of a crackdown on um, behaviors ranging from just talking back to teachers to more serious things like attacking a staff member or other students. But I'd say the common uh, theme in these bills is trying to make it easier for schools to remove students from classrooms and from schools. And so some examples are Arizona wanting to allow uh, younger students as young as kindergarten to be suspended, which uh, earlier law had uh, prohibited. Florida would empower teachers to remove disobedient or disrespectful students and even to use reasonable force uh, to protect themselves. Kentucky, um, which, as you mentioned, was, this bill was just signed, um, would allow schools to permanently remove disruptive students and put them in alternative settings, which could be online programs. Nebraska would let teachers physically restrain and then remove disruptive students. Um, and then North Carolina would change um, a law where less serious behaviors, things just like uh, dress code violations, cussing, things like that, would allow, um, would trigger long-term suspensions, which uh, until now had not been allowed. And so kind of in a, in a range of different ways, they are making it easier for schools to kind of take tougher action when they believe that students have um, broken the rules or misbehaved. Okay, so you heard Ben Court a little bit earlier talking about the questionable effectiveness of just removing kids or immediately suspending them for the kinds of uh, infractions that you talked about. Um, right. We will return. We'll, re we'll return to that in detail later. But I want to dig into one particular state that you reported on, um, Patrick, and that this is Nevada in particular, because as as you note. Um, in Clark County in Nevada, this there's been several like really terrible incidences of student violence just last year, which I think potentially has galvanized not just legislators, but educators as well there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I think Nevada is a really interesting case study in this and kind of a microcosm of the larger debate. And as you mentioned, there have been some really high-profile incidents, including a 16-year-old who assaulted a teacher at a high school there last year. Um, and so there are Republicans who have put forward bills, but also Democrats who have proposed these bills. And basically what they would do is kind of uh, reverse an earlier bill that had uh, led to discipline reforms. That earlier measure was meant to kind of move the state away from more punitive discipline like suspensions and expulsions and kind of find ways to change student behavior without removing them. Well, some teachers and other folks are blaming those those reforms, those changes, on the current discipline issue, saying that it's kind of led to a situation where students aren't facing consequences for misbehavior. Teachers feel like they have no recourse uh, when students act up. And so with these bills, it is not just Republicans, not just lawmakers, but the teachers unions in the state have gotten behind them. And we were looking at some of the letters and support that teachers sent. There were many of them. And they get into some really graphic detail about things um, that they say have happened in classroom, injuries that teachers have sustained, you know, foul language, things like that, and saying that when those things happen, a teacher might send a student to the office, and then they are sent right back uh, to the classroom so that they're arguing that, that students are not facing um, any sort of consequences. However, there, that is not every teacher, and there are some that say that, that this is kind of an overreaction and that it's really not addressing the root problems here, which is students struggling with mental health, with uh, regulating their behavior, needing uh, mental health support, which they're not getting because schools are understaffed when it comes to um, mental health professionals. 
And so they're saying this will just exacerbate the problem, isn't going to solve anything, and it's just going to make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so we actually um, listened in on some testimony that was given just a couple of weeks ago on some of these Nevada bills, uh, Patrick. And you're exactly right. Many educators spoke passionately with the diversity of views that, that you said, but it was quite interesting to note uh, that the unions are are pretty much aligned with some of the, the proposals in these bills. For example, here is Kaylin Evans, president of the Washoe Education Association. It's the union representing Washoe County educators, and he spoke at uh, an education committee hearing in Nevada, again, just a couple of weeks ago. There is no more of a pressing issue facing educators in our state and across our country right now than dealing with uh, student violence and behavior. There is not a curriculum, a tiered instructional support, um, an assessment support, um, any initiative or program that we can implement that will have any of the intended impact that we would like unless we start to address the learning and working conditions um, in our school system. So that was from a hearing in Nevada on March 16th, just last month. Now, at that same hearing, Assistant Superintendent Will Jensen spoke. He works in Humboldt County, and he spoke in favor of the school discipline bills. The school-to-prison pipeline, that's troubling for me. I want no part of any of that, right? But, but I, have to, I have to help us understand, right, that there's a whole other part of this discussion, I agree that there are disproportionate numbers of removals based on factors in zip codes. There's no doubt that the data shows that absolutely. But I'll say this, if there are disproportionate number of removals for acts of violence in a school, there are disproportionate number of victims in that same zip code. And I believe wholeheartedly that our system owes both the victim and the aggressor education. We're not washing our hands of kids, but let's don't disillusion ourselves with what's happening. When we say the kids remain in school, no matter what, don't assume that classroom is functioning in tip-top shape because it is not. That's Will Jensen, Humboldt County Assistant Superintendent, speaking at a Nevada education hearing on March 16th. Now, Patrick Wall, in your reporting, you note that the Nevada bills currently under consideration would actually roll back a 2019 law that just came into effect just before the pandemic that required schools to adopt restorative justice practices. And I think you heard a little bit um, from both of those educators, maybe sort of referencing either the failure of implementation of those laws or, or their ineffectiveness. Can you talk about that? Yeah. That's that's exactly right. There is this is part of a larger discussion in Nevada, but also nationally about kind of what is the right approach to discipline. And Nevada, like many other states, there have been at least 20 um, over the past decade or so have moved towards something called restorative justice, which you were hearing about earlier, which is kind of trying to shift schools away from uh, removing students through suspensions and expulsions and instead trying to change their behavior through mediation, through counseling, um, having them kind of make amends for the harm, but ways to kind of change behavior without kind of more strict uh, punishments. And um, what has happened is that some folks have argued that that has kind of reduced any sort of consequences. You often hear schools say that they feel handcuffed. Like now, they, when there is misbehavior, they don't really have any tools to use. 
What proponents of those reforms would say, though, is that, and this is what's come up in Nevada, is that they haven't actually been implemented, that instead of um, training teachers in these alternative methods, they kind of just said, you can't suspend students, and then good luck. And so what, what we're hearing, you know, proponents of, of those reforms say is don't kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't give up on this reform because it seems like it hasn't worked because it really hasn't been implemented. Mm. Well, let me turn back to Ben Court from EAB on this, because, Ben, in the more recent study that uh, that you've done about concerns about student behavior in classrooms, one of the conclusions is that um, the more you heard from educators, one thing became clear, that school districts are program-rich but impact-poor when it comes to student behavior management. I mean, you say that districts focus on the latest and greatest tools rather than training teachers on how to use these tools to achieve a desired goal. Is that what we're seeing here with the, with what uh, Patrick is talking about in the restorative justice practices? I think it's absolutely part of the equation. I think when we look at things like restorative justice, there is often a misconception around what that really means. The, you know, it is not no consequences. It is different consequences. And so making sure that teachers are adequately trained and empowered to be able to implement best practices in the classroom is the only way to figure out whether or not they're actually going to work. Evidence would say that in a controlled setting, they do. And so we owe it to students to try and do the right thing by them. That said, I think it's equally important to note that these things take time and resources in order to be able to do well. So we need to have structural conversations around how districts are organized and staffed to be able to respond to these incidents as they occur in ways that are going to be productive for the students and the staff at the same time. Mm. Ben, can you talk a little bit more about though about what we're what we're hearing, um, both through Patrick's reporting and just the teachers that reached out to us and are at you know these various legislatures, saying that um, in practice what some of these discipline measures have become, restorative measures have become, is just like kids just get sent out of the classroom, maybe to an administrator's office. They, they're chatted with for five or ten minutes, and then they come right back in. That in fact, there's no meaningful change or even training on how to bring about that change. I think that very much echoes what we've heard from teachers as well. I think districts are doing what they can today. They are dealing with an enormous number of challenges at the same time. And so in some senses, not to make excuses, but there are real reasons for the lack of training today. That said, it is perhaps the most important piece of the puzzle moving forwards, making sure we create space and time to make sure that teachers feel like experts empowered to do the right thing in their classrooms. Okay, so once again, we're talking about the uh, dramatic rise in student challenging or challenging student behaviors in America's classroom, classrooms, not just after the pandemic, because that has been there, but even before the pandemic. And you just heard Ben Court. He's uh, a K-12 senior analyst with the education consultancy EAB. And Patrick Wall is also with us. He's a senior reporter at Chalkbeat, um, walking us through the various measures that at least a half a dozen states are considering when it comes to discipline. So we'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. 
a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the ongoing and now exacerbated challenge of student discipline in America's classrooms. And I'm joined today by Ben Court. He's with the education consultancy EAB. And Patrick Wall is also with us. He's a senior reporter at the education news source Chalkbeat. And Patrick has been reporting on um, the half, at least half dozen states across the country that have either passed or are considering more get-tough uh, legislation when it comes to student discipline in the classroom. Now, we heard from a lot of folks around the country uh, about this, and I want to just uh, share quite a few more of what, uh, of what their thoughts are. Here's Christina Hardy. Uh, she's a middle school teacher in Dublin, Ohio. And um, when it comes to the tools that teachers have at their disposal, she had a lot to say about it, including a piece of advice an older teacher gave, uh, gave Christina back when she was student teaching 17 years ago. She said to me, if you want your principal to like you, don't send kids to the office. Just deal with it. I spent a semester in her classroom watching and observing and trying to mimic and take notes on everything she was doing. And I thought, well, if I just run a tight ship and have good relationships with kids and I respect them, then they'll respect me and it'll it'll be just like it is with her. I graduated and got a job in my own classroom teaching sixth grade in a challenging school with kids with plenty of unwanted behaviors. And there's so much I wish I would have known. And when future teachers and pre-service teachers are learning about students' brains and development and about how culturally responsive teaching can lay a foundation for deeper connections in a classroom and a safer feeling environment, research around trauma-informed practices, all of this stuff is available to us now in 2023. And so if we can tool up our pre-service teachers so that they don't just have to receive little bits of advice here and there from older colleagues and then be thrown into the fire, I think that our classrooms and, and schools and students will be better off for it. That's On Point listener Christina Hardy, again, echoing what seems to be a theme that Ben Court pointed out earlier about program-rich but implementation-poor challenges when it comes to um, discipline. Now, we heard from administrators as well. This is Natasha Woody-Weidman. She's in her seventh year working as an administrator in a middle school in Atlanta, Georgia. And her school does use restorative justice methods um, that we discussed a bit earlier, and they use them more than suspensions or expulsions for managing disruptive behavior. I am not the end-all, be-all with student discipline at my school. Teachers have the right to 
hold students for recess detention, lunch detention. They can provide different types of logical consequences to students, primarily because we are a conscious discipline-based school. So a lot of our disciplinary measures are more restorative than punitive, if that makes sense. Like sending a kid home is not primarily what we do because once they come back from a suspension, the behaviors have not been remediated. The student hasn't had an opportunity to restore the relationship with the teacher or the other students. I very seldom do suspensions at this point in my career. Um, There was a time where, you know, suspensions were the thing. But as we know better, we definitely do better. Well, that's Natasha Woody Weidman, an administrator at a middle school in Atlanta, Georgia. But this issue about the effectiveness of practices like restorative justice, um, it came up in the hearing that we talked about earlier from the middle of March in Nevada, where Nevada is considering a couple of stronger school discipline bills. For example, here is teacher uh, Kristen Nigro. She testified uh, in support of the Nevada proposals, and she's a kindergarten teacher in Las Vegas. It's ironic that we constantly reference restorative justice. It's just a fancy buzzword and a complete failure. During my time at UNLV to become an educator, I must have missed that class where they said my daily regimen would consist of protecting my students from other violent students, as well as students missing countless hours of instruction. Well, let me bring Elizabeth uh, Arinko into the conversation now. And she's executive director of the Children's Mental Health Resource Resource Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. Elizabeth, welcome to you. Thank you, Magna. It's a pleasure to be here. And I do believe I pronounced your last name uh, incorrectly. It's uh, Erico. (laughs) So sorry about that. Correct. Um, but, but, But Elizabeth... Is there a piece of the puzzle here that we're missing when it comes to this um, rise? It's pretty well documented rise in um, challenging student behaviors. Well, I think it's important um, to remember that we can't separate the rise in difficult behaviors in the classroom from the rise in mental health challenges and mental illness in children and teens. Very often, it's really just simply misunderstood what symptoms of mental illness look like in kids, um, because for the most part, we use adult models to understand symptomology. But the fact is that in kids, major depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, and even ADHD can appear symptomatically as irritability, oppositional behavior, difficulty making transitions, difficulty with social interactions with their peers, difficulty with interacting with adults. And so what many people look at and see as choices behaviors that are willful. I hear a lot of people use the words, the child decided to do X, Y, or Z. They're really totally misplaced because in many cases, we're looking at kids who are dealing with involuntary symptoms, don't have coping mechanisms, don't have management strategies. And as a result of these involuntary symptoms that are really hitting them like a wave, they're being disciplined, told Mm. they're bad kids, told that they are causing problems for their peers. It creates embarrassment. It creates humiliation. 
And it doesn't teach them any of the skills that they need in order to succeed. And if there's one thing that psychologists understand, it's that discipline and punishment don't work to change behavior. They're fixated Mm -hmm. around the idea of stopping something, but you can't stop something without knowing what you're supposed to be replacing it with. It's, yeah. it's why we would tell a little kid not, you know, you don't tell a little kid in a store, don't touch anything. You tell them, put your hands in your pockets or put your hands yeah. on the top of your head because it gives them a replacement behavior. Kids when they're being disciplined, particularly for symptoms, and there's no integration of what type of behavior it's supposed to be replaced with, and they're not being taught how to engage that replacement behavior, the discipline is going to be ineffective. And it's going to, in this particular case, put teachers in a position of having that revolving door on their classroom without things improving. Right. So so I've got a, several questions for you, Elizabeth. Who is supposed to teach the kids these alternatives then? I mean, teachers have their plates very full already with pretty strict academic requirements, as Ben Court said, because, you know, there's all this testing they have to they have to meet, all the, the different subjects, etc. I mean, h- how much can we expect teachers to to fill the gap when it comes to offering these kids these sort of therapeutic behavioral alternatives? Well, teachers, for the most part, and I, I work, you know, you said I was in Honolulu, which is where I'm based, but we're a national organization, and mm-hmm. I work with families all across the country um, and go into their IEP meetings, go into their meetings with their teachers with them. Teachers want to know these skills and tools so that they can pass them on to their students. But they cannot be expected to be the ones who are doing all of that work for the exact reasons that you said. They have to teach as well. When there's one teacher with 28 students in their classroom, it's impossible for them to be also teaching one or two students who have um, is symptomatic or behavioral issues, all of their coping skills. There needs to be systemic change that brings into the classroom and into the school districts support staff who can provide these therapeutic interventions in the place where kids are, which is school. Yeah. And right yeah. now, that's just not happening. Right. So I hear you when it comes to the need for systemic change, because even, for example, in the Nevada hearings um, that we we combed through, we we played some of the tape of educators who were saying there's a problem, we need to do something. But they were also talking about we don't have the funding to even accurately or appropriately implement, um, you know, the, the tools and plans and uh, methodologies that they they have now. Um, so I completely understand that. But regarding the urgency of now, um, I mean, thinking back to what um, the assistant superintendent um, in one of the Nevada schools that we heard from in the last segment was saying, there's a there's a particular child who is suffering because I I personally do not believe that any child who acts in this way is is a happy kid, right? Like they're not choosing to do right. this, as you said. But they are. But there's you know maybe. 18, 19, 20, 22, 23 other kids in the class who are having their educational experience also disrupted. And I mean, what are 
what are we to do now about protecting the educational experience for all, like right now? Well, the if you look at what we're talking about, we're talking about the group dynamics of a classroom. And if there's one student who is creating problems that are resulting in the other students not being able to learn, primarily and first and foremost, the student whose behaviors are disruptive isn't able to learn. And in theory, that's what having an IEP is supposed to address. It's supposed to make it so that that student can access their learning. If we look at and drill down on what is the obstacle for that child to access their learning and to be able to function, and we meet that need, and we solve that problem for that student, the ripple effect will be the same in the opposite direction. Then the rest of the students in the class will be able to have a constructive learning environment because that student who was struggling is no longer struggling. And, and we go into school districts all the time and talk to them about mental health needs, how to identify symptoms, how to differentiate it from misbehavior, what types of, you know, quick accommodations or interventions in the classroom can help de-escalate the situation and get the student back on track. But most often we have teachers asking us, please, can we do this? And we have districts saying we don't have the time to give to the teacher training, and we don't have the budget to pay for it. And so there are systems that that we have where we can bring that education and resources to the school system, but the focus is still on stopping problematic behavior instead of looking at the need that the student is expressing with that behavior, meeting it, resolving it, and getting that child and the rest of the class back to learning. Hmm. Um, well, what about all the other um, potential factors that Ben Court mentioned way at the top of the show? Uh I mean, that we've had policy decisions over the past 20 or 25 years that may have maybe have changed the shape of education with, especially in the elementary school level, for example, more more literacy and math to cope with no child left behind and uh, common core about the socioeconomic realities well outside the classroom that schools cannot control. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's almost like no matter what you do regarding mm, uh, trying to support mental health inside classrooms or inside schools, those overwhelming external factors will always will still be there. Yes, but if we open ourselves to the possibility that schools are no longer just about the, you know, the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and we recognize that children spend the majority of their lives in school, that schools can be resource hubs for children's needs. It sort of changes how we conceptualize the role of school. And the truth is that schools, the public school system does not meet the needs of most children who have mental health disorders. And in our community, Parents of kids who have mental health issues very often wind up homeschooling, wind up having to turn to private schools that can uh, provide smaller classrooms with uh, fewer students, with teachers' aides in the classroom, with more support around specials like art and music and, and physical education. And the the problem with that is while that's great for the individual student or the individual family, 
And what that does is that means that there is a class issue related to who gets access to education that recognizes and and addresses issues regarding mental yeah. health. Well, Elizabeth, I'm afraid I have to take it back from you there because we're running out of time. Um, that's Elizabeth yeah. Erico. She's executive director of the Children's Mental Health Resource Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, ben and Patrick, we've got a comment. Yeah, we've got a comment coming in here from Facebook from Danielle who says, why is the burden always placed on teachers and schools? What about the responsibility of parents to send children to school who are actually capable of being productive school citizens? Ben Court, we've got a minute left. Um, I'll let you respond to that. But also, Elizabeth said something interesting, that maybe the role of school, we need to recognize that it needs to change. Um, I, I don't know what you th- what you think about that, because there's still sort of the, the supposition that kids go to school to learn academics, and we can't push that off the, you know, off the stage, Ben. You got about a minute, less than sure. a minute. <laughs> I'll briefly respond to the last point with, Schools are focused on helping students to develop the skills and knowledge necessary to be successful beyond high school and through into their lives. We have to define what that is. When we look at the systemic change that Elizabeth referenced, parents are a part of that, making sure that we are forming effective partnerships for developing the right expectations and right skills at home and within schools is absolutely essential. And lastly, districts need to focus on making sure that everybody is on the same page around the expectations, the skills that we're trying to develop um, and the ways that we're going to address those skills Mm. in disruptive situations in a classroom and then have honest discussions around trade-offs. What does it look like to make sure that we're helping teachers be successful in the classroom while creating the time and space to support student needs today? Hmm. Well, student needs today, indeed. And I think it's that urgency that's given rise to the uh, bills that Patrick Wallet Chalkbeat has told us about. So, Patrick, thank you. And Ben Court at EAB, thank you as well. This is On Point.